There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. Uh, you know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. At you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got time to that. All right, man. Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined by David Lesky of Inside the Crown. Coming up at about 3.40 here on RCST. We'll have our next in line of the KU football season previews, Kansas State today, of Texas tomorrow. And then we got a bunch of live shows later this week. Jefferson's on Wednesday, Free State High on Thursday. Wayne and Larry's on Friday Friday for the Rock Chalk Round Bowl Classic. Plenty of awesome content coming at you. Uh, Bob Bullsby is currently, or maybe just got off, the stand at a Texas Senate hearing and some good comments from Bob Bowlesby adding on to everything going on with the Big 12, Texas and Oklahoma leaving, college football realignment, the whole shebang. The Big 12 had a Friday call, and Dennis Dodd actually summed up the current mood of the Big 12 following that call. He said, deep breath, time to think with at least stated intention of Texas and Oklahoma staying four more years. Even some lighthearted jokes, I think Big 12 right now believes it has more leverage than American, but have to stay together. And that belief, thought, was echoed by Bowlesby today at that Texas Senate hearing. He said, we believe the eight of us staying together is the best approach in the near term. Now, the key words in that sentence are the very last two, near term. Doesn't say in the long term, the near term. And I think that's something that I agree with. Now, as far as the whole ESPN matter in this with the near term, Bullsby said they're not going to escalate it publicly. It's neither 
party's best interest to do so, and I agree with that. You don't want ESPN to have a grudge against you if you're renegotiating rights later. But as far as sticking together in the near term, we know Big 12 schools got about $37 million from the conference each. We know that from TV rights, the Big 12, according to Bowlesby, this was another comment, were distributed roughly $28 million per school in TV money. So you have a lot of money that in the short term, if everybody stays together, Texas and Oklahoma have to stay in the conference till 2025. The only exception for them getting out would be if they pay the $75 million or whatever buyout fee to leave the, leave the conference, and they'd be eligible to possibly be sued. I don't know if it would go anywhere, which is why they don't want to do that. Maybe they will get to a point where they will do that, and they'll just fork over the money. But given that they don't want to do that, the only other way for them to get out would be the Big 12 dissipating. So if the Big 12 stays together, now that they know ESPN and the American Athletic Conference's plans to try to pluck them away and let the conference dissipate so that Texas and OU could get out cleanly, now that they know that, they're obviously not going to pertain to that. Which means in the near term, you want to stick together and make as much money as you want, and you know how much Oklahoma and Texas are worth to that money. Bob Bowlesby estimated that the remaining eight Big 12 schools could lose $14 million per year in TV revenue if Oklahoma and Texas depart. So that means basically the other eight schools in the Big 12 are worth about the same as Texas and Oklahoma to the TV revenue, which honestly sounds about right, to be completely honest. So I don't know how this would work. If Texas and Oklahoma leave the conference, if they did pay the buyout, would the money go down for these schools or would it still stay the same and the buyout money would get distributed in a way? I don't know. But it is important to note that you're still making more money for being in the Big 12, even if that occurs where you're going down 50% than you would in a conference like the American Athletic Conference. And that right there is the crux of it all in terms of staying together. It's not a long-term solution. But you'd rather be stuck having to join the American Athletic Conference only if you very much have to in 2025 and things fall apart after you've stored up all that extra Big 12 money that you're getting right now. Because $28 million with Texas and Oklahoma in the league even if it's $14 million with them out of the league, that is still double what the American Athletic Conference is giving schools for their TV contract. There is zero reason to leave the Big 12 unless it is for another Power 5 conference. And here's another thing. Bob Bowlesby just said this. He said, this is going to make for some very strange bedfellows going forward. And one potential option the Big 12 could pursue is a scheduling alliance. So that becomes very interesting because that is kind of the ilk of, hey, Pac-12 or Big 10 or whoever, we're going to be our separate conferences still, but we're going to create a scheduling alliance where we basically, we see it in basketball, the Big 12 SEC showdown, the Big 12 Big East battle or whatever it's called. You don't really have that in football, but imagine now, you add in an extra game every year where every Big 12 team is going to play a Pac-12 school. And now, instead of there being a game between Kansas and 
South Dakota on the schedule, it might be a game between Kansas and Oregon State. But it's less about the Kansas. It's more about there will be now a game between Oklahoma State and Oregon. And that's going to be valuable to the people bidding on TV rights. Which maybe raises it enough to help offset some of the losses from Texas and Oklahoma. So that's another way that you can make this work, at least in the short term. But again, if another power conference comes calling to any of these schools, then having the short-term money of staying in the Big 12 as opposed to leaving for the AAC or whatever is either about the same or better, depending on the conference, and you're saved long-term, meaning that that is still the best option leaving for another power conference. But if the alternative is either staying in the Big 12 or joining the American Athletic Conference, Mountain West, or whatever, you're going to stay in the Big 12 because you're making so much more money in the short term that if you have to get to that point after 2025, then you'll just cross that bridge when you need to. Might as well party out one last time. Might as well have one last bender. I think all these schools are probably, assumedly, on the phone, still trying to work stuff up with the Big Ten, ACC, and the Pac-12s of the world. But as I've said before, that's going to take a lot of time. It could take a year to figure that all out. Oklahoma and Texas were in negotiations for 6 to 12 months before that all got worked out and then was leaked out. So for now, people are just going to sit around in the Big 12. That also tells me the conference will be the ones trying to poach from other leagues as opposed to getting swallowed by the AAC. And that was kind of a ripple effect of what came out with the ESPN thing anyway. But I think it's furthermore when you have that number out there, when you have the idea that, hey, we're still making, even if we don't have Texas and Oklahoma, we're still making double the amount that you are AAC. So why would we join you? Why don't some of you guys join us? And it is such an interesting dichotomy between the American Athletic Conference trying to swallow up the Big 12, yet at the same point in time, some of the AAC teams, maybe they will think about it hardly, or maybe they will just end up leaving for the Big 12. Because it's definitely a risk. If any American Athletic Conference school leaves to go to the Big 12, that's a huge risk. Because what happens if you leave to come to the Big 12 and then a few years later, the Big 12 dissolves because these other schools leave for other opportunities. Now, you'd be having to go crawling back to the AAC and say, hey, will you let me back in? I know I broke up with you, but I'm hoping that I can uh, come back. Is that okay? Maybe they'll let you back in if you're that valuable, but you might have burnt the bridge as well. and You might hurt your university long-term in the process. But also, in taking on what would be that huge risk of that potentially happening, if you're an American Athletic Conference school, you'd certainly make more money being in the new Big 12, whatever you want to call it at that point, even without Texas and Oklahoma. Again, estimated value would be about $14 million per school, which is a big drop from what they're making now for the current Big 12 schools. But for an AAC school, they're seeing that going, oh, we can make double what we're making now. Plus... The Big 12 is still an accredited power conference right now. That matters. Think about that. For bowl purposes, the winner of the Big 12 still goes to the Sugar Bowl. And there are other purposes like that where it still matters, unlike the American. So I still think you can, if you want, if you're the Big 12, 
you can get some AAC schools to come over. But I don't think they will. And here's why. Because if they do, obviously given recent developments with ESPN, they ain't negotiating any contracts to make life easier on the Big 12 with new members. So you add Cincinnati and Memphis and UCF and whatever schools, BYU, Boise State, whoever you think would be the best fits. You offer those schools up or come in and they join, your contract value isn't going up because you're still under contract through 2025. And given how there seems to be some spite between ESPN and Big 12, they're not going to say, hey, why don't we renegotiate this deal? They're just not. They're going to say, oh, you're worth the same amount of money as you were before. But now you have more teams in the conference, so everybody's going to get less money. Everybody's going to get a smaller slice of the pie. And that's what happened back in 2016 when the Big 12 was talking about expansion and ESPN told them, hey, we're not giving you any more money. That was when Texas and Oklahoma were in the league. Who knows? It might have been a bluff because they had so many years left on the contract. But they weren't going to do it then. They definitely wouldn't do it now. So that means if you do add AAC schools, there's no added money. Everyone's taking that smaller slice of the pie. And on one hand, that would be pretty funny to basically be forcing Oklahoma and Texas not only to remain in the Big 12, but also to be telling them, oh, not only do you have to stay in the conference till 2025 because we're sticking around, you're going to be making less money than you were originally because now we have extra teams in the league and we're going to split the money. Sorry, that would be kind of funny. But on the other hand, that's basically cutting off your nose despite your face because you're hurting yourself since you too would be losing money. From a long-term perspective, though, the AAC adding teams from there or whatever conference Heck, at Jackson State, apparently Deion Sanders was campaigning for that. Like, that would happen. Adding the AAC teams or whatever conference makes sense for the Big 12 if you're trying to strengthen the league long-term. Maybe not financially, but the brand of the league just keeping together. Just staying together beyond 2025. That makes sense. But from a short-term perspective, from a money perspective, it's either a, a net zero or it's a loss for you in the short term. And that's where the distinction needs to be made. If the Big 12 truly is trying to stay together, they should probably add teams, but maybe not adding teams until 2023, 2024, 2025, somewhere in there. Because at that point, you're near the end of your contract, so you're still getting all your short-term games without giving it ex to extra schools, and you get the long-term involvement. And that's the long-term play. But if the goal here of the Big 12 is just to sit back and infuriate Oklahoma and Texas, be a nuisance to them leaving, but also stick around for the next four years and gain a bunch of money in the conference that you wouldn't be getting if you do happen to have to fall off to being a lesser version of the Big 12 or fall off to the AAC or the Mountain West, you want to absorb as much of this current conference money as you can before you're possibly left behind. Which makes me think this is just going to sit at eight. The one caveat being, again, if any of the schools are able to leave for a Big Ten or ACC, 
but then they'll be in the same situation as Texas, so it probably won't come till 2025 anyway, which means you're probably just sitting around for four years and hoping to make a big move in 2025, whether that's adding schools to the Big 12 or leaving for another conference then, but I'm not expecting anything to happen now, and given that you would make less money by adding AAC teams right now, it just doesn't make sense in the short term, or as Bob Bowlesby referred to it as the near term, which is why I don't think anything's going to really change in the coming months. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins us in 20 minutes. The Royals did not fare so well over the weekend. They had won 8 of 10, and then they lost three in a row to the Toronto Blue Jays. But the trade deadline also happened, and maybe the Royals helped their farm system at least maybe just a tiny bit because they didn't really have a fire sale. We're joined now by David Lesky of Inside the Crown here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Danny Duffy, Jorge Soler, both gone from the team. I think maybe the bigger surprise is that Jorge Soler was traded, not necessarily that they'd want to trade him, but over the fact that who knew if you were going to get any value for him. So I guess we'll start there, David. What are your thoughts on the return that the Royals got for Soler? Well, they got a live body who <laughs> presumably throws baseballs pretty hard. I've literally never seen him pitch. Uh, well, that's not true. I, I remember my um, foot draft was a 2019 that he was drafted. I remember I remember watching him, watching some video of him before that draft and thinking, oh, he'd be an interesting sixth-round pick <laughs> or something like that. So... Uh, you know, just 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 to get somebody who has a live arm. I mean, that that's that's that, that was the dream, right? I mean, that, that was that was the whole. Hey, we we need to get Jorge Soler hot, so some team will give up a low level prospect for him. And Jorge Soler got hot, and some team gave up a low level prospect for him. I mean, it was pretty much exactly what everybody had hoped for. It's funny because you know, I was I, after the trade was made, I I was kind of. And I put some thoughts down on Twitter, which really aren't too many because of the level of the deal. And I get a couple of responses. That's it. Well, what do you what do you expect <laughs> for Jorge? So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So I, I think it's I think it's a good deal. Look, I mean, if if if, uh, if Kalich doesn't become anything, then oh well. But he's got look. He's got a mid nineties fastball. He has a slider that it's a work in progress. Yes. Um, but when it's good, it's really good. And and there's a guy in AAA, Dylan Coleman, who was the player to be named later in the Trevor Rosenthal trade last year. Um, he he was more advanced when the Royals got him, um, but he's dominating right now in the upper minors. I mean, he's throwing 101. He's got a nasty slider. I think he's going to be on the big league roster soon. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't have a date for you, but. I, I think he'll be in that big league bullpen pretty soon and be a factor moving forward. So, look, they've got a track record with a guy like that. And so it, it, it's a worthwhile risk, at the very least. And it, and it might it might end up being a really good trade, um, but if nothing else, it's at least the right trade. Yeah, I think, I think you've, uh, as you're well aware, covering the Royals in baseball in general, I think there is a very big divide among prospects, just in general with, with fan bases, just with like yeah. your own prospects versus other guys' prospects. Like I remember seeing one guy being like, "Oh man, when the Mariners were interested in Whit Merrifield, hey, maybe we can get Julio Rodriguez and Emerson Hancock <laughs> right. for him." And she said, "Well, I think you might want to set your bar a little lower there." Uh, which, speaking of a lower bar, the Danny Duffy trade 
about a low as low of a bar as you can get with a trade. Now, maybe as far as what you get doesn't end up being that way, but just right now, like you basically traded him for nothing at, at the point in time because he's a player to be named later, which again, maybe the player to be named later ends up being a stud. Um, so I guess what's your favorite tool in the toolbox of player to be named later? You know, it, it's funny because it, it seems like such a uh, lackluster trade um, because you don't know who, who they're getting. But from what I've heard, uh, a lot of it is, is there's a couple things that I'm not 100% sure if this is accurate or not, but I've heard that from somebody that it the return is based on when Duffy comes back. And so that's why they haven't made – a, a complete deal yet. And then somebody said, no, that's not the case. The Royals just haven't decided yet, but they had, they wanted to make the deal quickly. <laughs> so not hundred percent sure, but even for both sides, it sounds like it'll be two prospects. One of them in the Dodgers rankings of like eight to 14 ish. And they have a really good system. So that's, it's a good prospect. Um, and then somebody lower. So, you know, somebody, more like the Kalich deal that you're not, you may not remember the name ever again, but it's okay because it's the second part of a deal. So I think it'll end up being a you know, decent, pretty decent prospect. And, that, and if you think about it, that's for what, uh, I mean, I, I think I heard Duffy say that he thinks he can come back in three or four weeks. So that's like five weeks of regular season pitching. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think in the end, we'll look at it as a good deal. It's just hard to evaluate right now because you're right. We don't, we don't know anything about it. So, um, and and I think the bigger news from that deal is a bigger picture deal. And it's that the Royals kicked in money. I Maybe I'm missing something, but I can't remember a single deal during David Glass's ownership. And this is not to, to bash David Glass. I don't, I don't mean that in any way, but I don't remember a single deal where the Royals said, hey, we're going to give you some money to cover this deal to get a better prospect back. And they did that on... It wasn't his first deal, but his first trade deadline deal as owner with John Sherman. Um, he kicked in money, and they're going to get a better prospect because of it. And that, and so, and we can evaluate the deal once we know more. But like that, from a big picture perspective, is really reassuring because I mean, the, we, we talked about this a number of times. The best way to get prospect value is to pay for it. And I mean, look at the draft, Steve Cohen. I mean, he stepped in it yesterday or whatever day it was. I guess it was yesterday when he said the draft is um, not it, – it's the best way to get talent because you're never going to pay that, that little amount for such a high-impact high piece. But, like, how much could they have kicked in with Duffy? At most, what, he was $16 million, so at most like $7 million if they paid the whole thing, to maybe get back a potential impact prospect? I mean, that, that's, that's a dirt-cheap way to buy a prospect, and – you know, if the Royals are willing to do that, that's the bigger takeaway, I think, from the Duffy deal. And on top of that, we'll probably know in the next couple of months who the prospect is, and maybe that'll be a good one, too, and it'll be a huge takeaway. Well, I know you asked you last week jokingly about the Air Cosmo return, but that was before we found out, or who knows if it was ever true, but there was a report out there that to give away Air Cosmo, they were willing to attach one of their top four prospects, which for some mm-hmm. systems, maybe that's not as big of a deal, but given all four of the Padres' top four prospects are in the top 50. Is that a deal they actually should have done? Yeah, see, that I go back and forth on that because, yes, it would be great to be able to pick up, you know, and, and Eric Hosmer's a serviceable bat. It's not like he's a nobody. Um, it wouldn't have been the worst thing to pick that up as long as you got Robert Hassel or C.J. Abrams or, you know, I'm not a huge McKenzie Gore fan, but I mean, he's one of their top prospects. So, you know. 
but at the same time, does it fit with the organization? Um, and yes, the prospect does, but you're taking on what ended up being, I don't, I don't remember what it is for us this year, but for the next four years, $59 million for Hosmer, I think. And, you know, with Nick Prado coming and you've got Carlos Santana under contract for next year, I don't know how much sense that makes. And with another organization, I'd say you figure it out. You move Hosmer, you release him, whatever, because you bought a prospect. But I don't, I don't really think Dayton Moore would move on from Eric Hosmer, which, which makes it, it, it changes the formula there a little bit. And then it's, it's, it gets a little screwy. And so I kind of went back and forth on that. But at the same time, I mean, what was stopping them from trading Carlos Santana? Dayton Moore spoke this morning um, in Kansas City on a radio station about, um, you know, the the Cubs seem to be selling the same type of parts the Royals were, and it kind of made it seem like, yeah, they were in to try to get Santana to the Yankees, but they wanted Rizzo more. Well, there there goes that that buyer and the Red Sox and Nationals too, I guess, because the Red Sox got Kyle Schwarber. There, he's going to play first base. It sounds like once he gets healthy and. You know, they could have been in the market for Carlos Santana. So I, I, I don't know if they were trying to, and then if they did, they, they would have gone and made that deal with the Padres or not. But uh, it's, just, it's just hard to see with the current roster how that would have fit. But at the same time, yeah, if you can get – and again, Hosmer's not a bad player. He's just not a good player. <laughs> so you get that and a top prospect, I, you know, I, I would have considered it. We're talking with David Lesky here of Inside the Crown. Given that there were a lot of guys on the team who – maybe you thought could end up being traded, whether it's expiring contracts or older veterans or even guys with another year or more of control. And given what you saw from maybe some other teams in terms of some big prospects going, given that coupled with the fact that Dayton Moore has kind of made some comments about we want to get better in 2022, that's the goal if we're making a trade here. In him saying that and doing what he did at the deadline, is that basically him making his bed to say if we don't succeed by next year, there's going to be a new GM by 2023? Yeah, that it, it, it's hard to take it any other way. Um, I, I have heard some things through the grapevine that he's kind of in a make-or-break season next year. Um, he honestly was probably saved a bit by a pandemic-shortened season because I the Royal I mean. John Sherman, new owner, I don't think he was going to make any kind of evaluations on 60 games, right? I mean, and it would, I don't think it would have been fair, honestly, given given what that season was. It was just get through it and we'll, we'll figure it out later. Um, and so he probably bought himself an extra year because had they had, you know, what were they on pace for last year? 71 wins, 70 wins, whatever it was. And then they had the season they're having this year. I, I'd be surprised if Dayton Moore made it through 2021 or to 2022, I guess had last season been a full season with, with the record extrapolated out. And so, yeah, I mean, I think he's, (laughs) he's kind of on the hot seat now because you can't say, Hey, look, we're not going to move these guys for prospects to help in the future because we're going to win in 2022 and then not win in 2022. Right. I mean, you've got to, you've got to be able to, to put up, I don't know what it is. Is it 85 wins, 90 wins, 93? I don't know what the number is, but you, you've got to be competitive past Labor Day. <laughs> and if you're not, then, you know, you're, you're, you're not doing your job. So, yeah, I think he's, um, I think he's pretty much signed his papers that if, he, if they don't win next year, I, it's hard to see him back in 2023, which, you know, depending on your opinion, may not be the worst thing in the world. But, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> – he, he went from – 
hey, we need some wins in 22, but it's really about getting to 23 to win the division, too. You got to win in 22. Given that there were some comments this morning about Adalberto Mondesi with Dayton Moore, what do you kind of take that as? Do you think Mondesi could be a trade candidate in the offseason? How do you kind of surmise uh, his comments about him not being a 100-game player? Yeah, that was that was as blunt as I've ever heard Dayton Moore, and that that's I don't, I don't want to read too much into a comment, um, but I don't think that necessarily does anything to disprove what we just talked about <laughs> because if if Dayton Moore wasn't didn't feel like there, the fire on his seat, he probably wouldn't say that about Mondesi, don't you think? I mean, that seems. Seems like something that doesn't really make sense for a guy who's super comfortable in his job. Um, it was really interesting to hear that, um, and I, I don't know what that means for Monty. It's at this point. I mean, you, we kind of saw it play out with the Twins a little bit. They tried to extend Byron Buxton, and there's no good way to extend that player because the player thinks he's an MVP, and the team says, "Hey, we agree, but you only play X number of games." Well, Monty hasn't put up the numbers that Buxton has long enough, but he was kind of on the way to that this season <laughs> with his first 10 games, which is his only 10 games. Um, and then they tried to trade him too. And, and there's just, you don't get comparable value for, for, for a guy who just, you, you just don't see enough of you. It, it's really difficult to find that value in either a contract or a trade. And, and because of that, I don't, I don't know that you can move him. So the good news is the Royals are in a pretty good position because they've got, Nikki Lopez playing well at shortstop. They've got Bobby Witt Jr. knocking on the door at shortstop. Presumably Witt can also play third. Lopez, we know, can also play second. Mondesi, we know, can also play second. Um, they've got some versatility there. And then they've also got Witt Merrifield, who didn't get moved. So we know he can play second. So they And, and Hunter Dozier can play third. I mean, they, they've got some, some really movable parts that make Mondesi's spot on the roster, even if he's only a 100-game-a-year guy, um, they've got some parts that make that work. So they're not in the worst position there. It's just that was, that was a really odd comment coming from Dayton Moore because just I, I can't think of a time he's ever said anything even remotely like that. As far as the on-field results this past weekend, didn't obviously go too well getting swept by the Blue Jays, and the Royals continue to really struggle on the road. Uh, Daniel Lynch ends up getting um, beaten by the Blue Jays in one of those starts, but overall, I think 4-5 ERA in a game against the Blue Jays probably isn't the worst thing in the world. What did you make of Daniel Lynch's second start since coming back up? Well, listen, I mean, being the first opponent in Canada since 2019 uh, in Toronto, I mean, that, look, that, that was a situation. First of all, like I, I think I wrote this morning, if you had asked me when the Blue Jays were going to play their first game in Toronto, I would have looked at the schedule, found when the Royals were there, and said, that's the date. Because you just <laughs> knew that was what it was going to be. Um, and it was. <laughs> and, and so, you know, they, the first weekend series, I mean, that place is raucous. Blue Jays fans are kind of awful in some ways. So <laughs> there's that. Um, but it, it's, it, it, it was a tough weekend for the Royals. I mean, a good team probably would have lost two of three at, at best. So, there's that. But Daniel Lynch, I thought he was really good. Um, he made a mistake in the second to Teoscar Hernandez. He kind of got out of his rhythm a little bit for, for a while, and, and he thought, oh, boy, here we go. 
But what was most encouraging is he fought through it. And with young players, especially guys who have failed the way Lynch failed his first time up, because that was, I mean, there's no other way to put that. It was a failure. Um, he got you know, three runs in three innings against a good lineup. That's a, even, though it's a, even though it's a limited crowd, it was a pretty raucous crowd being that first game back. And then he shut them down in the fourth, fifth, and sixth. I mean, he looks really, really good. And now you're going off, okay, he had a great outing and then a pretty good start, which when you add in the circumstances, I think takes it up to good start. Um, it's really, really encouraging from what we've seen from Lynch. And, you know, he's not getting the strikeouts just yet, but uh, I don't know, you got to feel good about what you see from him because it's just been, it's been really impressive performances the last two he's been up with. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about the strikeouts, six strikeouts over the last 14 innings of work between the last two games. Is that just not something that's in his repertoire, or is it a cause of concern, or is it just something that you think will kind of level out as he continues to pitch more? Well, I, I think it'll level out because he's got some strikeout stuff. Um, he, 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 the circumstances were such that he was – I mean, the Blue Jays are tough to strike out in general. Um, I think there were some, I think, I think he's had a tough time early on, it, on, on that mound with, with, with the circumstances. I don't know. And, and we've seen kind of the moment take him over a little bit in the past. And, um, you know, you're concerned a little bit about it, but he's still getting swings and misses. It's not like, it's not like he's going out there and getting three whiffs in a game or anything like that. He's double digits still, um, You'd like to see more, but I, I think once he gets a little more comfortable using his slider, um, we, we saw a lot of uh, two-strike fastballs. And his fastball, it, it's, it's a pretty good pitch. It's just not a strikeout pitch. And I think he needs to get to his changeup and slider more in two strikes, which will ultimately lead to more strikeouts. But, you know, the level of contact he's allowing, it, it, it's fairly weak. And um, I think he's just trying to, trying to get in the zone more than he was. Uh, in his first first three starts in the big leagues, and you know, I, it's one of those things that his next two starts are White Sox and Astros. So, good luck, buddy. Um, but after that, he's he's going to have I don't know, probably eight more starts this year, something like that, eight or nine. Um, if once he gets past this really tough stretch, if he doesn't start to to rack up some strikeouts, yeah, then maybe it's a concern. But at this point, I'm he's like I say, he's getting swings and misses, he's getting weak contact. I'm okay with it, but. Something to watch for at the very least. He is David Lesky. Check out all his great work at Inside the Crown. Awesome substack there. There, David. Thank you so much for the time. And uh, just to let you know, I don't plan on trading you out. I value you like Dayton Moore values a post prime player who's contributed Whoa. in the past. And I do not plan on trading you out for a flashy young writer. Okay. Well, that that is high praise, so I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) He's David Lesky of Inside the Crown. David, thank you so much as always. Yeah, thanks, Derek. All right, David Lesky, subscribe, Inside the Crown, FM 1017, 1320, KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Four o'clock hour, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. On FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up at the top of 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk more about the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic. Busy week ahead for you here. We've also, coming up in a little here, got your next KU football season preview. We've gotten through the non-con. We've gotten through, I believe, five different Big 12 opponents. We'll have Kansas State. That's the next opponent. 
coming up later in the show. Tomorrow, we're going to preview Texas, and then I believe we'll only have two more after that, and we'll be all done with the KU football season previews, and then we'll move on to other things. But first, it's time for another edition of a segment that helps you maybe catch up on some things that you didn't hear about over the course of the weekend. It's called Case of the Mondays. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. And that is what Justin Houston hypothetically said to the Chiefs. No, man. Get out of my face with that offer. I don't want it. I don't know if the Chiefs actually offered him. They signed Alex Okafor last week. I would think Justin Houston, better than Alex Okafor, didn't seem to ask for a ton of money. But who knows? Maybe that wasn't something the Chiefs were interested in. Either way, Justin Houston is going to another AFC team. That would be the Baltimore Ravens. It's a cheap deal. It's about a million dollars in base pay. You can get up to $4 million with bonuses. The Chiefs had the cap to make that work if they wanted to. And again, they probably have a need there. Even after you did sign Alex Okafor, you could have convinced yourself to sign him. You can never have enough pass rushers. And given the fact that You don't know what's going on with Frank Clark off the field. I felt like this would have made a lot of sense. I know Justin Houston had recently posted on Instagram doing a workout, and he was wearing a Chiefs helmet, and that got some Chiefs fans to think, oh, is he going to come here? That tells you one of two things. Either the Chiefs didn't pursue him, or he just didn't want to come. I know that's very simple. It's one thing or the other. But there's a real chance that the Chiefs burnt a bridge with Justin Houston, and he didn't want to come back for that reason. I believe Brett Veach was the GM at the time he was cut. Andy Reid was obviously still the coach. You would have had Bob Sutton as the DC, which is different than now having to beat Steve Spagnuolo, and maybe that would be enough for you to want to come because you don't have to worry about dropping back into coverage like you were having to do with Bob Sutton. But either way, that's a nice pickup for a team contending with the Chiefs and likely dries up the pass rush market the names that had constantly been linked by Chiefs fans to say, hey, go sign this guy for cheap. He'll help out Melvin Ingram and Justin Houston. Now they're both off the market. And you did sign Alex Okafor, which you could actually argue Okafor might have more value than Ingram because he's going to probably give you more games. Ingram has been kind of hurt of late, and Okafor has had pretty much the same production as Ingram. But that's not the case with Justin Houston. He's still been a productive player. And for just $4 million dollars, would have been a nice steal for the Chiefs. I would think having the money to do that, they would have at least kicked the tires there. But this is becoming a trend. The Chiefs are passing on some of these players for not a lot of money. Bashad Breland only got a couple million dollars. Seems like something the Chiefs would have been interested in. Seems like $4 million for Justin Houston would have been something they're interested in, but who knows? And if Justin Houston ends up having 10 sacks for the the Ravens or 8 sacks or something, you're going to look back on that saying, why didn't we just spend the money? We had the money to do it. Why didn't we pick him up? Especially if Frank Clark gets suspended, then you're going to really wish that he would have made that move. Another NFL contract was the Nick Chubb deal. He signed a three-year, $36 million extension. I know this might rile up the don't invest in running backs crowd, but I actually kind of like this. I really don't mind the short-term deals. I think where you get into trouble with running backs is when you overpay for them. So that means either drafting them in the first round, like that's in theory overpaying a running back, 
because of the fact that you're over-investing in one where you can get similar value in the third round or in the fifth round or undrafted or whatever. It's the same thing with contracts to me. I don't have a problem with a running back making solid money on your team. Where you run into the issues is because a lot of these guys aren't nearly as productive once they hit age maybe 27, 28, 29, somewhere in that range. 30 years old. I guess it really depends on the running back. But a lot of times, by the time these guys' rookie contracts are up when they're 25, 26 years old, you sign them to a five-year deal, and now you're on the hook for them for those age 29, 30, 31-year-old seasons when they're probably not going to be very productive. This deal with Nick Chubb doesn't do that. He's 25 years old, so you're basically getting him for with three-year extension this year plus the three years of the extension, 26, 27, 28. You might end up a year too late, but I'm sure like most contracts in the NFL, most contracts, it's like by the time you get to the last year of your deal, you can basically be cut and maybe there will be a couple million dead cap that comes along with it, or maybe there won't be any at all. And I think that's the biggest issue with the big running back deals. When you give them that long term, this is short term. I know there's a lot of guaranteed money, but it's because it's short term. I don't think it's an overpay. I think this is about right. And I think this is what you need to see more of the star running backs. Now, would I give this to more than a handful of running backs, a three-year deal when they're age 25? No, probably not. But you don't want to get in the situation of paying Christian McCaffrey for five years down the road. You don't want to get in the situation of paying Le'Veon Bell four years down the road or paying Ezekiel Elliott seven years down the road. This is a happy medium to that. I think both sides are probably happy with this. One player who didn't get a contract over the weekend was Kumar Rocker. And if you remember in the MLB draft, that might have been a name that you were hoping that the Royals got and they could have had the chance to do it. They didn't. The Mets ended up getting Kumar Rocker with the 10th pick in the 2021 MLB draft. And remember, Rocker, the pitcher from Vanderbilt, was a guy who at one point was seen as the top pick in the draft. He had a phenomenal freshman season at Vanderbilt pretty much from then on. I think he throws like a no-hitter in the Super Regional against Duke. From then on, he was seen as a guy being circled as he's going to be a future top five, top three, maybe number one draft pick. And then strong sophomore season goes into the junior season. And there were some questions. He had different points in the season when... His fastball maybe was fluctuating instead of being a mid-90s pitch, was sitting in the low 90s or was hitting in, in the high 80s. And that was up and down. And some people had questions about that. Some people had questions maybe because of that about his health moving forward and if he would be a long-term starter, if he would be a viable option to go through the workload of being an MLB starter. And then there was also the other part of this where Supposedly, and I, I don't know the truth of this, there was a rumor that Rocker and his agent were trying to get him to fall a little bit in the draft once he had passed maybe a certain point. Who knows what that was? Maybe he was saying, hey, if I don't get picked in the top three, I just want to fall to this spot. And he wanted to go to the Mets, whether that was a market thing, whether he thought it was a good fit, whether he thought they had a good pitching development program, whether he thought they could get good money there. Whatever it was, that was kind of a rumor. What well, ended up being the wrong move if that ended up happening? But also, this is a bit of a syndrome of the MLB taking advantage of young players and screwing another one over. The Sunday deadline passed yesterday. He did not agree to a deal, which means that 
well, it means a couple different things. He could either go back into the draft in 2022. He could sign with an independent league team. He could go overseas. He could just sit out the year and train. He could go back to Vanderbilt for a senior year pitch again. But either way, he's not going to be able to enter the MLB till after next year's draft because they were unable to reach a deal. And you might say, well, why didn't he accept the contract if he really wanted to be in the MLB so bad and he wanted to avoid having to be another year of not getting paid or of having to go to college? Then why didn't he just accept the deal? Maybe he didn't get as much as he wanted, but he could have just taken the deal and swallowed it and deal with it. Uh, no, that was not even on the table. This is from Anthony DeComo of MLB.com. Multiple sources said that the Mets were unaware of Rocker's arm issues until he traveled to New York in mid-July for his post-draft physical. Although the two sides could have negotiated a lesser deal than the $6 million pact they have agreed around draft time, Mets officials were concerned enough by Rocker's medicals that they did not even make an offer, according to a source, as they preferred to have the number 11 pick in next year's draft instead. And... That's a good point as well. So MLB draft rules, if you don't sign your first round pick, you just get that pick plus one the following year. So it deters you a tiny bit to say, well, it's going to be one pick lower than you had this year, but it doesn't deter you a ton. You could say, oh, wait, I, I think next year's draft class is way better. Or I think next year's draft class, maybe it's not as good at the top, but with pick 11, like it's a deeper draft class. Why would we sign this guy? We can just double down next year or figure out, hey, this is when a bunch of our free agents are going to hit. Why don't we stack up on a specific draft with extra draft picks in the first round? Because we know those guys are going to happen to come up when we're losing a bunch of free agents. It's another manipulation by the MLB, seemingly, or another rule that can be manipulated that seems to be manipulated. But there also is a part of this that does go back on Kumar Rocker. Rocker could have avoided the situation. This again, back from Anthony DeComo of MLB.com. Could have avoided the situation by consenting to an MLB-sponsored program that shares the medical information of top draft pitchers. But he risked falling precipitously on draft boards if his MRIs revealed significant elbow or shoulder issues. As such, sources said that Rocker did not participate which allowed the Mets to decline sign without even making an offer. So because of this, if you don't make an offer, it's fine as long as he's injured. Per MLB rules, they would have needed to offer him a deal worth at least 40% of his slot value had he participated in the program. But they also might not have drafted him at all if he did based on the medicals. So this was a risk. It was a risk by him to say, hey, there's clearly something wrong with my medicals because obviously it was enough for the Mets to say, we're not signing you, that I don't want to disclose it to teams. And who knows what that would have meant. But that's a little crazy to me because we've seen guys before. I mean, perfect example, Gunnar Hoagland. First round pick, pitcher from Ole Miss, needs Tommy John, so he misses the season. He still was a first round pick. Now, maybe he wasn't a top 10 pick like he thought he could have been before that happened. He was still a first round pick. Kumar Rocker took the risk to say, well, if I don't disclose my medicals, maybe I can still be a top 10 pick. But if I disclose my medicals, maybe I'll be a late first round pick or an early second round pick, but I'll definitely know I'll get signed because the team knows I'll be of interest. By making this risk, he ended up not being signed. And part of me wants to say, on one hand, 
Rocker flubbed this by not giving off his medicals, which he kind of did. Because if he would have ended up giving his medicals, yeah, maybe his draft stock plummets to the late first round or early second round. But at that point, you're still getting signed. But on the other hand, he still is at the same point in time, and other players could as well get screwed over by this rule and by the Mets because if forced to take, it basically just forces you to take a year off of baseball without any pay or sign with an independent league team or go back to Vanderbilt for a senior year, which maybe he doesn't want to do. And Steve Cohen, the Mets owner, tweeted this out in the aftermath. Education time. Baseball draft picks are worth up to five times their slot value to clubs. I never shy away from investments that can make me that type of return. So on one hand, that tells you they obviously think something's wrong. They either are bothered by the fact that he didn't disclose that to begin with, or they really hated the medicals. But it's just kind of weird, too, because Tommy John has become such a synonymous thing with pitchers. It, like a quarter of MLB pitchers end up having Tommy John at some point. So if there's something wrong with his elbow and you know he needed Tommy John, it's not a who cares thing, but it is like a, okay, we probably expected you as a top tier draft prospect to get Tommy John at some point. So we still like you. We still like your potential. We'll just give you Tommy John. I mean, Noah Syndergaard, one of their top pitchers, has had like two or three Tommy John surgeries. So I get it, but also you would think even then, while maybe you would only offer less money, you still think they would have offered the 40% of what the value was. But then again, maybe they just wanted the draft pick next year, and that's where the rule comes into play that kind of screws you over. The other part of this that's interesting of him tweeting that is also probably not great that an MLB owner, especially with a new CBA due up in the offseason, is coming out and straight up just admitting, yeah, these prospects are getting severely underpaid for what they're worth. They're worth five times what we're paying them right now. I hope that gets brought up in the CBA negotiations and that current players get to bring that up and say, hey... Yo, one of your owners said, actually, when you get drafted, you're worth five times that amount. So maybe maybe uh, the rookie scale should be bumped up a little bit more. Maybe we should start actually paying minor league players a little bit more money than just giving them like 20 bucks a game and a free sandwich for lunch. I don't know. Maybe that'd be a good idea. Uh, but this isn't the first time we've seen this. And honestly, it's worked pretty well for the team's doing it while not working so well for the players who've been, again, you get kind of taken advantage of. Because again, even if Kumar Rocker needed Tommy John, we see that all the time, you think the Mets would have at least offered him the minimum they could have offered him, but they didn't even do that. This is the same thing the Astros did. They had the number one pick in the 2014 draft. They took Brady Aiken, who was a, a high school pitcher. And I believe he ended up having something wrong with his arm. They ended up not signing him. A year later, they got the number two pick out of it, and they took Alex Bregman, which worked out. Uh, they did the same thing in 2012. Or, excuse me, uh, the Pirates did in 2012 with Mark Appel. Ended up getting Austin Meadows the next year with that comp pick. Toronto didn't sign Tyler Beatty, and then that allowed them to get Marcus Stroman a year later. So this has actually like really worked out for MLB teams. It's kind of a strategic play. It's very interesting, but it just really sucks. For the players, and it sucks for Kumar Rocker. He basically has to sit a year out instead of getting his professional career started and working in the minors. Now, 
I don't know what he does. It does help that he does have another year of college he can go back to, but maybe he just wants to start his pro, pro, pro career. And I would say Kansas City Monarchs, sign this guy. Sign Kumar Rocker. I'd like to go see an independently game with Kumar Rocker. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, more Olympics also happened over the weekend. One of the most incredible things I saw this weekend was sand volleyball. There was a challenge that got challenged and was overturned. So there was a play where a ball was like, I don't know, it was called out in the end. So apparently outside of the line. And they got, originally it was called outside the line. The U.S. team challenged it. They reviewed it and said, oh, looks like the ball actually slightly hit the line. So team, I I can't remember if this was Canada or Cuba they were playing against challenged the challenge, which I didn't even know you could do, and I didn't know that would result in a different answer. But apparently it did, because they challenged the challenge and it was overturned. Could you imagine that if we had that in the NFL? Like, no, I'm challenging your challenge. Take a second look. And it ended up working. That's just ludicrous. Like, what? Uh, we also saw swimming dominance from McKeon of Australia, seven medals, and America's own Caleb Dressel. Xander Schauffele won the Olympic gold in golf. That was an awesome story. His mom is, I believe, born in Taiwan, but grew up in Japan. So you have the hometown kind of story there, the the roots of your hometown story there. But also Xander Schauffele's dad was competing for Germany and trying to make it to the Olympics. And his Olympic career at the decathlon was cut short because he was hit by a drunk driver. He's actually blind in one eye from it, but he wasn't able to compete in the Olympics. And so Xander Schauffele ends up making it to the Olympics representing Team USA this year, and he wins Olympic gold. Really cool story there with his dad. He also had him fending off Rory Sabatini, who shot a 61-10 under on Sunday, the best round in Olympic history. He finished second, but the best part, honestly, might have been what occurred for the bronze. Seven players tied for third and had to go to a playoff to determine who won the bronze medal. All started with Hideki Matsuyama. If he would have hit a putt on the 18th, he would have just won bronze. But he missed, which pushed him, pushed him to the pack of third with Rory McIlroy, Colin Morikawa, C.T. Pan, Mito Pereira, Paul Casey, and Sebastian Munoz. And making it better, all seven represented different countries at the Olympics. So you had different representation, different countries rooting for different people. First hole playoff, they split into two groups on 18. Matsuyama and Casey bogeyed. So now you're down to five. Then they played in a fivesome, which was hectic, fun to watch around the green, seeing all the guys there. They went to hole 10, then hole 11. And after that, it finally whittled down to two guys with more cow and pan. Pan won on the next hole on the 18th. Just an exciting, funny, chaotic finish uh, there. I wish they just would have done what happened at the high jump. You had Mutaz Essa Barshim, might be mispronouncing that, of Qatar, and Gianmarco Tamberi of Italy, who in the high jump both cleared 2.37 meters. Then both got to 2.39, which was the next height. Neither could clear it. And you get three strikes or you're out. Neither was able to do so. So instead of doing a jump off at that point, which they would have gone back to lower heights and then just worked from there till somebody messes up, basically like a shootout. Instead of doing that, the official is talking to them and you hear Barshim ask the official, can we get two golds? And he says, yes, if that's something you both decide on. And they immediately just broke out into emotion. It was awesome to see. Tim Barry screams, lays on the ground. 
Barsham starts fist pumping. And I believe it was the second ever gold for Qatar. And for Tamberry, he brought his cast. He had a really bad injury before, and he brought his leg cast and showed it. And it was just an emotional moment. Really cool. And the two of them have history as well. It turns out that Barshim and Tamberry, they met at the junior meets 11 years ago. They had the same injury, and they helped each other get through it. Tamberry was at Barshim's wedding, and Barshim said he'll be at Tamberry. So a really cool story there. Both end up with gold. I wish they would have done that with the bronze medal at the golf. It would have been kind of cool. Elsewhere, though, in international competition, the Gold Cup final. U.S. beats Mexico 1-0 in extra time. Only takeaway I have from this, I didn't actually watch the game. I was watching the Olympics. But I did see the clip of the player from Mexico like doing a Captain Insano from Waterboy kick into a guy's head with the cleats right into his head, and he only got a yellow card. Instead of a red card, that was wild to watch. Uh, also, the TBT now down to two teams. Bayheim's Army, Team 23, scoring off on Tuesday night. And then NBA Free Agency starts up here in a little over 30 minutes. Kawhi Leonard, Chris Paul expected to decline player options. Rumors swirling around Kyle Lowry. Devontae Graham is a restricted free agent. Who knows? I've seen some rumors about maybe the Hornets wanting to do a sign-and-trade where he goes to another team, signs because they have so many of these other guards already. So we'll be on the lookout to see where Devontae Graham ends up. Hope he ends up in a really cool situation, whether that's staying with Charlotte or finding a new spot. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. That is Case of the Mondays. I got to get out of here. I think I'm going to lose it. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a Case of the Mondays. <laughs> cool news. Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by Rex Walters. Got down the pipe about that. Also, our normal guests, Matt Tate, Kevin Flaherty. Talk a little Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. But first, we continue on with another KU football opponent season preview. We've gone through the non-con portion. We've gone through some of the conference portion. Next opponent on the schedule, just going from when the games are played for Kansas, is Kansas State. And if you missed any of our previous previews, you can check them out on our Best of RCST podcast brought to you by Tommy's Express Car Wash. Last season, Kansas State dropped down a bit from what the year before that was kind of an excellent first year under Chris Kleiman. They ended up going 4-6 and six a season ago, 4-5 and five in Big 12 play. Nothing was more odd than the beginning of the year for them. They lost to Arkansas State to open, and then the very next week, they beat Oklahoma in an upset win. Uh, they ended up tanking the year, too. They were 4-1 and one at one point, and then they lost five straight, including three of the five by 27 or more points. So it's hard to tell. Was this just kind of a weird COVID year? Was it just a down year? Is there something else there? But I would think they're going to get it figured out this year. A big reason why you have nine starters back on the offense. They were seventh in the Big 12 in points per game, 26.5 per eighth in total yards per game. By offensive efficiency, though, it was very ugly for Kansas State offensively. They were 115th in the nation. Out of comparison, Kansas was 126th, and it was no secret that Kansas was really bad offensively last year. Kansas State wasn't that much better than Kansas was last year. That's how much of a struggle it was. A big reason why was because of quarterback play. Will Howard had to take over after Skyler Thompson got hurt in the third game of the season, and Howard really struggled. He had 10 interceptions to eight touchdowns. They didn't really get much from the QB position. 
But Skylar Thompson, the good news for them, he's back. He's coming back for his sixth year. That kind of fortifies the position from being one of the worst in the league, which it was with Will Howard, to now you're one of the top half situations in the Big 12 with Skylar Thompson back for sixth year. And that might be underselling it with what you're getting. The heartbeat of the offense for Kansas State is Deuce Vaughn. A lot of people have made the Darren Sproles comps for good reason. He's a five foot five scat back, which maybe it sounds a little crazy to compare a guy to somebody who was as good as Sproles was. But you look at the pro football focus grades, they jump off the charts. He averaged over five yards per carry as a freshman. You watch him play, really good running back. And you have four starters back on the offensive line to pair, given the fact that you have Deuce Vaughn, Skyler Thompson is shown to be a dual threat. I would imagine Kansas State is going to have one of the best running games in the Big 12 here in 2021. Definitely better than what they finished a season ago, which was seventh in the league in rushing yards per game. I'd bet they're top three this year. You can probably assume Oklahoma is going to be up there, if not in first. Maybe you assume Iowa State would be up there with Brees Hall. Texas maybe with Bajon Robinson. Oklahoma State usually does pretty well. They'll definitely be in the top half with those other teams, but I would probably assume, I mean, if things are clicking and things are working well for them, they'll probably be top three. I kind of like the receiving core, too, for Kansas State. Malik Knowles is really good in the open field. Added a solid Illinois transfer. Not even going to try to pronounce his last name. It's like eat him more to Bebe or something. Um, and I think you could see a breakout from Free State native or Free State former attendee, Lawrence native, Keenan Garber, who was phenomenal to watch at Free State. And I've been kind of waiting for him to go through the development program and be that next guy who you look up in three years after high school and all of a sudden they're a stud for Kansas State. That is just what they've done in state. And it's a pattern that you hope Kansas can follow. Defensively, they've got five starters back. They were eighth in the league at 32 points allowed per game a season ago. They were eighth in total yards allowed per game. They were a bit better defensive efficiency, a lot better than the offense, 71st in defensive efficiency there. But you lose Wyatt Hubert, who was really good defensive lineman for them, especially with the pass rush. And I don't know, maybe this is just thinking the same way where I feel like OU always has a good quarterback and Oklahoma State always has that All-American receiver and TCU always has that stud linebacker. That Kansas State, like, I feel like they always have a really solid defensive lineman to lead the pace. Maybe that's just a little bit of recency bias with the two latest that come to mind with, like, Wyatt Hubert and Jordan Willis. But I feel like they'll have a guy there. Secondary seems sound. Another Lorenzian, Echo Boy Doe from Lawrence High, returning among other starters and some transfer talent brought in. They don't have a, as much of the returning experience at linebacker, but that's another position that I feel like usually they have some dudes there, just program-wise. They really struggled against the big play a season ago, and that's kind of the biggest question for me with the defense. They were 90th in the country a season ago in explosive play defense. And that is usually a staple of a Kansas State defense. It's preventing big plays and making you work for it defensively. And not sure if that's a trend or if it's just a weird off year for them last year, if it was a COVID thing. But that seems to be the big crux to me. If they get back to being a team who's preventing big plays and making you earn it, they should be back to being solid defensively, which I think they'll be good offensively. I, I think the over-under win total for them is only like, five and a half or something, I would probably pound the over on this team. As far as the series, Kansas State has been dominant in the past couple decades. They won last year 55-14 to over Kansas blowout. 
year before was the major disappointment, the game where it felt like Kansas was building some momentum. You had the game um, against Texas Tech, or I'm sorry, against, uh, I don't remember if the Texas Tech win was before or after, but you had the game against Texas where you went down to Austin, you put up high 40s, 50 points or so, and you barely lost that game. Brent Deerman had taken over as OC, and you were getting really excited. And then you had a, if not full, pretty full Memorial Stadium. Now, not all of it was Kansas fans. Some Kansas State fans in there as well. It was a lot of people there, more than I had ever seen since coming to KU. And then it was just kind of a letdown. You never really had a chance in that game. You lost 38-10. You were physically beat down. You, it felt like Kansas State was running the same three or four plays. You couldn't stop them. Couldn't do anything offensively. And that was disappointing. The last two have not gone well. The score last year was actually worse than the stats. Kansas was only out-yarded by 61 yards. If you throw in penalty yardage, it was single-digit difference in terms of yardage between the two teams. But where KU found their troubles, you lost the turnover battle by one. That didn't help. And one of those turnovers, you lost two to one, was a pick six. So that's going to add seven points the other way. But a big reason the yards were closer and also that the score was further apart was because Kansas State needed zero offensive yards to score two touchdowns. Well, I guess three if you count the pick six when you include the two Phillip Brooks punt return touchdowns. And that was kind of a good reminder of the 2017 version of the game in Lawrence. It's not Kansas State win with special teams, 30 to 20. I mean, pretty close game, 30 to 20 there. And yet Kansas State had a kick return touchdown and 244 punt and kick return yards combined for that one. It's a good reminder of another area KU has to fix under Lance Leipold, especially in comparison to what you've seen at Kansas State, who has seemingly mastered that unit since Bill Snyder. It's not just a reminder of own your town, own your state, with guys like Echo Boydo and Keenan Garber in your own city going there. It's also a reminder, hey, we got to fix the special teams, because that's been lacking as well, and that's an area that you can find easy success and improve yourself on to maybe win between the lines and grab an extra win here or there or make these games more competitive. And Kansas State has dominated in those regards. Kansas State's been a really good special teams just in general ever since Bill Snyder, but they have dominated Kansas in those regards, especially when you think back to last year and 2017. But overall, KU has actually kept the series close a few times of late before those two beatdowns. 2017 game was 27-20, to 20, that same one, with seven minutes left, even including all the special teams issues you had. 2018 game was won by Kansas State 21-17, but that was the game that you had a couple opportunities, including the Peyton Bender one, where KU was driving late in the game, and Peyton Bender just dropped the ball trying to throw it, and boom, all of a sudden, game over, instead of you going in for a possible late touchdown to try to win that game. And then you have the 2016 game, which it was... Kansas State the whole way through, but you played a competitive 34-19 to game, which, again, key word, being competitive, that's kind of what you're looking for for Lance Leipold here in year one. KU obviously has to stop the run in this game, as we're looking ahead and mentioned how good I think K-State can be on the run. KU averaged giving up 236 rushing yards per game last year, 118th in the country. They were also 118th in yards allowed per attempt. So, uh, you got to be stout there at least much better if you want to win a game like this or be more competitive. And overall, this is the game that you need to perform well at the most, and you haven't of recent years. 
Doesn't mean a win, but again, the key word being competitive. And it'd be real nice if you did finally get a win over Kansas State for the first time in over a decade. Just be close to your in-state foe, at least. Don't lose by 30 or 40 like the 55-14 beatdown last year. Close the gap. Close the gap in special teams. Close the gap in in-state recruiting and in-state development. That is the goal, and that is kind of the trend of the KUK State game. FM 1017, 1320, KLWN's Rock Chuck Sports Talk.